This event was recorded live at the 2016 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Thank you. Can you sit there? Thank you. Ah. Um, thank you very much. Um, you all know the drill, phones off, etc., etc. We're going to be here for an hour in the company of Frederick Forsyth. I was looking to see if we've got any sponsors to mention, but I don't see it. But the Bailey Gifford Main Theatre. So the theatre itself is sponsored by Bailey Gifford, who I'm sure are wonderful people. Um, <laughs> um, it's my pleasure, distinct pleasure, to introduce um, Frederick Forsyth to you because he's one of those rare authors. When I um, was in the transitional phase between children's books and adult books, when I was about 10 or 11, um, there were very few books that my father and I could read and enjoy but we shared a love of Alistair MacLean and Frederick Forsyth. Um, and so that kind of helped us bond. My dad didn't read many books. He liked a thriller. He liked to, and he could read a book in a day, whereas it would take me sort of weeks to read a book. Um, but it was a very immersive experience. We're going to talk today about um, Frederick Forsyth's The Outsider, which he says is not an autobiography. And I'm going to quiz him on that in a second. But meantime, please welcome Frederick Forsyth. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I want to start with something in the book, and it's your lucky bullet, which just missed you when you were in Biafra. You had it fitted to a chain, yeah. and you wear it around your neck in rough environments. So are you wearing it today? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's in a drawer in Buckinghamshire. <laughs> it's in a drawer. Possibly not to be used again? I don't think so. I mean, I said that jokingly. I don't believe in superstitions. Well, this is my lucky whatever. <laughs> yeah, I just, um, I don't know why, it, it just slammed into a doorpost uh, in a sort of fight in a rather obscure little village in the middle of the rainforest. And um, so when the, f the firefight was over, I got a pen knife and dug it out. And um, so I brought it back to London and I got a, a, a jeweler to shave off the rough bits mm. and put it on a, on a little chain. Um, then jokingly said, it's my lucky bullet. <laughs> if they don't get me with that one, they won't get me. <laughs> <laughs> it, I mean, it's, it, it, it's not the only bullet that's been fired at you uh, in the course of your life. We're going to come into that in a, in a, in a minute. Um, think about this book is, what is it? Because you say, it's the outside of my life and intrigue, and you begin by saying, for years I fended off suggestions that I should pen an autobiography, and I still do. This is not a life story. Yeah, well, the, the, yeah, that awful uh, sort of addendum of my life and injury, that was the publisher, so I insisted. I said I didn't want it, but anyway, I got it. Um, yeah, I think, I think a, a real autobiography is a scholastic work. It should be, it's a work of reference, and therefore it has to be pin accurate, and that involves a lot of research, whereas a memoir, as it implies, is just simply what you remember. And um, so I just sat thinking, well, there's that and there's that and a hymn. Oh, God, yes, remember him? Oh, wow, yeah. Well, that place I went to, that was weird. Um, and then I thought, well, I actually it was friends around the dining table more. Sometimes I'd tell an anecdote, and then someone would say, well, you should write that down. And I thought, nah, 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 for years. And then eventually I thought, why not? So I thought, where do we start? Why not go to the beginning? And so I started at zero, <laughs> age-wise. Ended at 75. <laughs> that, that's it. <laughs> But it was just what I remember. Mm. Um, and I got to a point where actually, when it was finished, I started going through it and thinking, who have I insulted to the point where they will sue for libel? <laughs> and uh, so I thought, he did. 
<laughs> oh, I hated him. He's dead. <laughs> I got to, I mentioned that uh, there were only two left alive um, who might have been really rude about. And one, I checked them out. One's in an asylum, the other's in a care home. <laughs> so, <laughs> Mentioning no names, obviously. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, th this does. I mean, the, one of the problems with uh, they always say is a cliche is that fiction has to be realistic. The real world does not. And your early life, to me, reads like a novel. The amount of extraordinary things that happened to you. I'm just going to list a few for the audience. This is by the age of 24. When I was 24, I was still a student at Edinburgh University. But by the age of 24, uh, Frederick Forsyth, he'd visited France as a lad, and a drunken Frenchman had drowned and nearly taken him with him. Um, he earned his wings, because he was obsessed with flying and becoming a flyer, earned his wings and immediately then turned his back on the RAF. Um, he went abroad for a week, and during that week experienced one mid-air near disaster, one civil war, and two uprisings. By this stage, I'm thinking maybe it's you. Um, I know. And uh, what else we've got? We've got um, then it became a journalist, bad car crash, ear hacked off and sewed back on again, um, went to Fleet Street, uh, went to the press conference at the Elysee when de Gaulle vetoed the British application to join the EEC and got a job as a Reuters correspondent in East Berlin, the only one I think there was at that time, yeah, after, all by the age of 24. After the war went up, you see, they, 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 they all, we, we, we the West, NATO, expend, expelled all these German journalists and they responded by doing the same, bar one, <laughs> the Reuter man, so I was Reuters. So they gave me East Germany, Czechoslovakia and Hungary. I was 24. <laughs> Oh, 25. Sorry, 25. The thing is, that having been so passionate about flying in your early days, skipping school to go and do flying training and all the rest of it, as soon as you got your wings, as soon as you qualified, you turned mm. your back on it, which mm. I think is extraordinary. Well, yes, there, there was um, a reason, and it was that I, I didn't want to just fly a desk. And I was told that after the wings parade, um, uh, there would be no chance of a hunter squadron. Hunter, the de Havilland hunter in those days was, so to speak, the frontline fighter, a uh, single-seat jet, uh, like the vampire but faster, tran transonic. And um, I said, I, I want a hunter squadron. And they said, <laughs> you must be joking. Only Cranwell men get hunter squadrons. So um, I said, well, what, what will I be doing? And they said, well, with luck, you'll be uh, on a, in, the, in, the, in the, the, the right hand seat, which is co-pilot, on a freighter, um, the, the milk run to Malta and back. That's if you're very lucky, but probably you'll be driving a desk. So I thought, no. No, I've got another ambition <laughs> and uh, after flying, and that was to see the world, to travel. I, I came from a, a, a one-horse town in Kent, uh, way down, as you know where Kent is. <laughs> and um, there was nothing much happened there except the uh, Tuesday cat, in fact, uh, the cattle market. That was the big event. So um, I thought, no. My dad was very encouraging. He said, when you, when you can, get out here. Go and see the world. It's a great world. He traveled as a young man before the war. <clears throat> so I said, I've got to see the world. I want to see all these places. I want to see Japan. I want to go east, west, south, north. I want to go to America. I want to see Africa. Um, I'm not going to do it sitting here. So um, um, who, who does this sort of thing? Ah, I know, foreign correspondent. And I hadn't got any money anyway, so I thought, I know a man who does, Lord Beaverbrook. <laughs> so uh, I thought, I'll, I'll join the Daily Express. So I didn't. I joined Reuters instead. But I did get all over the world, which was the idea. And so you were, you were in East Berlin at the height of the Cold War. Very much. At and travelling backwards and, and forwards. Assassination of Kennedy, yeah, it got very tense. Yeah, and travelling backwards and forwards from east and west. I, I, I could go through Checkpoint Charlie when I wanted, um, but... Usually uh, followed by an East German... 
Yeah, followed well, all over East Germany, yeah, followed, followed by the Stasis. But they couldn't get through Checkpoint Charlie, whereas I could. Um, but I had to be back by midnight, like Cinderella. Uh, that was a condition. I had to live in East Germany, in East Berlin, actually. And, um, um, and I had to be back, if I visited the West Berlin, I had to be back by midnight. So, uh, Living in, a, in an apartment <laughs> for, that was... was for, for a young man trying to, how should I put it, see if he couldn't sleep with a girl. <laughs> It was rather frustrating because it's just after a coffee. <laughs> oh, sorry about this. <laughs> well, I, I unless, unless the girl in question was a was an agent. Uh, well, that 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 uh, there, were, there were a few opportunities. We, 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 we didn't we didn't come here to talk about that sort of thing. <laughs> not, your your not wife's not here. You're perfectly. This is before you met your wife. Don't worry about it. Um, but the, that made you well potentially useful to MI6. Eventually, yes, but it, it, it was actually, it was actually um, the, what they call the firm that approached me, not the other way around. And I was never on the staff. It was only a question. Back in those days, um, the Cold War, uh, it was reasonably common for um, um, the, the, the firm, as they call it, to approach somebody who, maybe usually a businessman who was going to attend some trade fair in a rather difficult to get at place. And just say, look, while you're there, would you just keep your eyes and ears open, see if you see anything interesting, hear anything interesting. Uh, and when you come back, you know, we'd like just to have a conversation with you. So most, most said, yeah, you know, you, there was no money involved. It was just, you know, do, do help if you can. Mm. And so I got approached and, um, uh, but that was after I came out of East Berlin. It was to, it was to go back in. Um, and uh, so I said, uh, rather foolishly, I said, yes. Um, I didn't know whether to mention it at all in that, but uh, the publishers were very eager that I should. So there is a cha there is a chapter in there about East Berlin and East Germany generally. Uh, I mean, there was one there's one extraordinary incident. I'm going to forget the timeline, but when you were approached to actually um, take a package um, in your car, yeah, um, hidden <laughs> underneath the uh, battery, I believe. Yeah, I, I agree. I agreed to take a package in and bring a package out. Uh, but I thought it was just through the wall um, into East Berlin and back by nightfall. And then they said, actually, we have in mind going to Dresden. <laughs> Bloody hell, that's miles inside. <laughs> and I go to, the, go to Dresden, and um, there was, a, there was a, a Russian colonel who was based near Dresden, and he, he, he changed sides and he was working for us. So he had something he wanted brought out, and uh, they wanted something brought in, so I said, okay. But anyway, it happened. It happened, and it's a very tense episode in the book because at one point you stopped in a lay-by, and um, yeah, the car and, broke down. Yeah, and the, the car, car and, and the, the security services turn up to give you a hand. Yeah, with your engine. Yeah, exactly. With the, I just I was just in this in this uh, lay-by, with a screen of pine trees between me and the motorway, uh, trying to get this blasted package underneath the battery where it was, it was a compartment that had been built. To, to take it, and um, suddenly the, the, whole, the whole parking area is flooded with white light. And I thought, who the hell is that? I looked down the length of the car, because I was up front, and um, with, the, with the, the bonnet up, <laughs> delving away inside. And there's this, this is cream and green Volkspolizei, People's Police car, right, out, right with its headlights on full beam. So I thought, oh boy. <laughs> Actually, all, all they wanted was a leak. One of them jumped out, went into the pine, pine trees to relieve himself. So the other three gathered around and said, you know, yeah, hello, <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> the car's broken down. 
And um, so they, uh, they, they uh, got one of their number was the mechanic, they mended it. And then uh, I passed some Rothmans around, I used to smoke in those days. So the, the, the very valuable um, Western cigarettes got passed around. I actually, they actually saluted me and escorted me back to the mainway. <laughs> I mean, it's the best kind of research you can possibly do, isn't it? You don't know it's research. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what's useful until could, afterwards. I swear you couldn't invent it, and I didn't. No, I did. I have to say, Freddie, I did at certain points in this book, I thought, now, is he, is he bullshitting us here? Did this <laughs> but it was, yeah. this, you know, the amount of the things that have happened to you in your life, are, I mean, you know, we've not even got up to you becoming published yet. After your adventures in, uh, in, in Berlin, you came, back, well, you came back to the UK, you were working for the BBC, you were covering um, the, the Biafran conflict, yep. the Civil War, and you had a big falling out with the establishment. I did, yep. Tell um, us a little bit about that. Hence, well, that's something to do with the, with the title, <coughs> The Outsider. I've never been a joiner, or, or really. I prefer to be outside, looking in, watching. Um, on the grounds of the establishment, as far as I'm concerned, mostly bastards, and I don't want to join them. So, um, yeah, they, they, um, they, the Foreign Office, took the side of uh, the federal government of Nigeria, very passionately, and, um, but I was sent down to the others, the rebels, the Biafrans. Um, and uh, then I was called back, and they said, you know, you've been, you've been very biased. I said, I haven't. They said, oh, yes. We have it from the High Commissioner in Lagos uh, that uh, your reports haven't been true. I said, he was 400 miles from it. I was in the middle of it. Mm. Oh, I'm sorry, old boy, but I'm afraid you know, High Commissioner outweighs a BBC correspondent. So I said, what, do you, what are you going to do about this war? He said, well, we're not going to cover it, actually. Not going to cover it? Not going to cover no. it, no. So I said, well, this is when the Vietnam War was at its height. So that was an American screw-up. We'd made one down in Nigeria. Um, the, the attitude was, we're not, we, we're not going to cover it. I thought, this isn't the BBC, this isn't a newsman talking, this is the establishment talking. So I said, okay, fine, well, you may not, but I am. So I walked. Well, your, your, your flat in London was burgled, wasn't it? Broken into. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it, yes, it, it, they, they're obviously in there looking for something. But uh, I did, when I walked, I didn't say I was going back to, to Biafra. I, I just walked out. Um, and then I... I, I Went down to, I went, I actually went to Heathrow and bought myself uh, on, my own, on my own tab a ticket to Lisbon and then I um, sort of conned uh, an, an arms, arms dealer into giving me a free flight down to Biafra. So while I was there, um, the, the, some, someone entered the flat uh, and I think they were, they said to the neighbours, uh, we have concerns for his health. So uh, they said, oh yes. and. Um, uh, anyway, the, the door was duly beaten in, and um, they, they went through everything. There was nothing there to find anyway. Hmm. So, uh, who do you uh, think that was? I mean, would, would that have been? <laughs> that, well, it, it was the BBC. The BBC. It was the BBC. Yeah. There is a. There is a. There is a. There, well, I was told there is a very secretive little fellow in the BBC called the Investigator, and um, back then they were terrified um, because they they'd lost. The BBC had had a correspondent who defected to East Germany, and it caused a huge scandal, very, very embarrassing. So just in case there, there were any other such backsliders, they had a man to investigate the, the politics. Mm. Of, uh, but the idea that the <laughs> old Fred would defect to the Moscow was just <laughs> was a serious misunderstanding. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you, you were dogged, weren't you? You, you insisted on, on covering that campaign even when nobody in the UK was interested. 
or very few people were interested. You did eventually get them interested. Well, it, what happened, you see, it, it, people overlooked that it, the, the children weren't, didn't start off by dying of, of starvation. It took time. And when it was just a, apparently a little not very interesting, not very fascinating intertribal spat in Western Nigeria, it wasn't headline stuff. Uh, what changed it was when it became plain that the children, uh, about a year after the combat began, the children began to die. Uh, in large numbers. And the first pictures um, were published um, here in Britain uh, of these um, stick-like infants with uh, huge lolling heads and unfocused gaze. Um, and they were dying. That, that had, a, had a, quite a revolutionary effect. There were, there were demos and placards and marches and uh, people shouting at uh, Harold Wilson and so on. Um, after that, it became a big story. Uh, America got in, the journalists, I mean, and then European journalists got in, and the place was just solid media, really. And you ended up with a price on your head. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah, I was told that. I was told that by uh, by a, a colleague um, who who'd been on the Nigerian side, um, and uh, apparently they, they 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 thought that, that I had a certain uh, well in in Lagos reputation. Um, because I was the only guy getting, me getting stuff into the media here mm. as a freelance by that. I'd gone back as a freelance, obviously, no job. Um, but they didn't, uh, they didn't like the stuff that I was getting uh, published here. Uh, and neither did the FO. So uh, uh, I got this tip that they put a price on you, dead or alive. So <laughs> So you decided... So I, um, at the very, very end, I, I thought, really, really is time to move on. <laughs> so uh, I got the third last, last plane, third from last plane out. So this brings you back to, to London, um, homeless and penniless. Yep, absolutely. And uh, I didn't So know you what, think the only thing I know, the only thing I can do now is to write a novel? Stupid idea, isn't Stupid it? Stupid, terrible idea. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Lunatic. I've got debts, I've got nothing in the bank. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, sleeping on the sofa of a mate's flat. Um, I haven't a car, I haven't a job, I haven't a I've got nothing. Um, how do you get out of this mess? I know, I'll write a novel. I mean, rob a bank, yes, but write a <laughs> novel, it's, it's, you know. But I didn't know that. Um, and innocence has its charms, so I just sat down and wrote a thing called The Day of the Jackal. Mm. You wrote it in about 35 days. Yeah, well, nothing else to do. <laughs> <laughs> It seemed, I mean, even thinking back on it and, and rereading it recently, um, you know, having read it when it first came out or soon after, it is an audacious book because the reader knows the plot doesn't work. That's right. Um, uh, it's it all based on what I physically saw um, when I was in Reuters, in uh, Paris for Reuters, uh, back in 62-3, when uh, the OAS were seriously trying to assassinate Charles de Gaulle. There were six. Uh, six actual attempts made and about a dozen plots. Um, and it was, it was a sort of dicey time because France was on the threshold possibly of a coup d'etat uh, if, if the assassination had been successful. Mm. Uh, the army was poised to take over. I mean, this, this isn't some banana republic, this is France. <laughs> yeah. And um, then, you know, he, he, Charles de Gaulle, had given independence to Algeria, which was for some... Um, absolute you know, um, sort of crime, practically, to give, a, give, a, give away Algeria, their beloved Algeria. And um, so that was what it was like. I, I, I watched it all as a, as a foreign correspondent, and then seven years later I decided, you know, that there's a story there. 
Um, but when I hawked it around, it got refused by the first four publishers, simply because, quite logically, they said, but he's alive. <laughs> it, didn't, it didn't work. And I said, no, no, it didn't work. It's about how close he got. No, no, no not interested in the story. So um, it was the fifth who took it, and he was taking a real flyer, he was taking a risk. Um, but it worked, and, and then they, he commissioned two more, which became eventually the Odyssophile and the Dogs of War. Um, in that period, I got married, and my then very, obviously very new wife said, why go back to Africa and get your head blown off in a rain ditch or somewhere, um, when you can sit here quietly at home and make a better living? Mm. When you think about it, not bad. Not bad. <laughs> but, but, I mean, just to wind back slightly, I mean, you got very lucky with that publisher. You'd met him at a party. I had. And I then you yes. barged your way into his office. I know. The next day, saying cheek. you were good friends with him, to his secretary. Pure, pure cheek. Yep. And you insisted on sitting there while he read some of it. Well, it wasn't, no. I, what I'd done, I, I, I decided oh, I'd on, make a on, mistake. So I wrote a synopsis. I thought, no one's going to wade through this. I wrote a synopsis. And then I, got, I wangled this interview with the editorial director of Hutchinson, who I had indeed met at a cocktail party, but it was only an acquaintanceship. And, but he was, I was a perfect gent. And having, instead of having me thrown out, he said, um, what are you here for? And I said, well, I, I've got a manuscript. You can see he was glazed over, because these guys have got screens of young ladies <laughs> to, to stop them being pestered by, um, by uh, you know, people with a manuscript. Uh, but uh, anyway, I, uh, just before I was thrown out, I, I produced my two pieces of paper, and he read them there and then. Um, and then he went thoughtful, and then he said, well, uh, where's the manuscript? And I said, it's with, an, I named another publisher. Oh, he said, staring at the ceiling, I can't possibly uh, see a, a manuscript when it's in the hands of another publisher. So I said, don't move. <laughs> I'll be back. <laughs> so I got a cab, which I couldn't afford, went down to the other publisher, got it back. Came back, uh, gave it to him, and that was on a Friday. And he rang me on the Monday. He said, "If you'll be here at four o'clock with your agent, uh, we can talk about a contract." And I hadn't got an agent, <laughs> but he—I mean, he could have skinned me alive. But he, he a very, very good man, and he gave me a reasonable three-novel contract. Saying as he did so, "Have you got any other ideas?" Hmm. Well, of course, being a press man, a perfect liar. So I said. Ideas? I'm bursting with ideas. <laughs> Back on the street, I thought, what the hell do I know about? <laughs> yeah, but you were, I mean, you had your time in Berlin, which gifted you the Odessa file, there, really. Yeah, I'd heard and of your Odessa. time in Africa, when you were rubbing shoulders with mercenaries yeah. during the Biafran War, which gave you Dogs of War. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, you pitched those at him, and that was you, three books? Uh, yeah, I one page synopsis on each story, and I took them back to him um, at his request, and he glanced at them. He said, Nazis first, mercenaries second. And I want the Nazi story by the end of the year. So I thought, oh, that's fast. And then I said, look, there's one slight problem. There's going to be some research involved here, and I haven't got a penny. And he, he paused, and then he wrote out a note and uh, said, take this to accounts. And they advanced me £6,000, which is a lot then, um, to, to cover the research. I think that's more than most novelists get these days for their first book. <laughs> these days. And that was yeah. 71. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, um, I did deliver Odessa Vile by, by year's end, and um, then got stuck into the... Did you ever, you ever get in, you know, I mean, the, the Odessa Vile, did you ever get any, um, in trouble with the, the, sort of the, the real-life perpetrators, shall we say? I, I, I had a sort of unusual gift, because uh, my father had sent me to live with the German family three times during those long summer halls. 
um, I could pass for German. So um, I sort of infiltrated the, the, the um, Nazi group just to study the bastards and um, got to know them quite well. Um, nasty people, but anyway, it got, yes, it got me, in, got me inside. But did it ever get you death threats or...? Um... No, because they never spotted me. <laughs> I mean, after the book was published. <laughs> it's like, it's just in and out. <laughs> uh, you didn't have trouble, which book was it you were writing and you were actually posing as an arms dealer? Oh, that was The Dogs of War. Yeah, was that the one, the one where your book almost got you caught? Yeah, well, I, the, that was the third one, that was The Mercenaries. Yeah. I'd got all the stuff I needed from Africa and from mercenaries and what they did and how they did it and so on, so, but what I didn't know was how they got black market arms. Um, and so I, I did a bit of ferreting and discovered that the capital of the black market arms trade in Europe was Hamburg. Uh, and the big number there was a guy who's mentioned in the book. Um, and uh, so I went over there and pretended to be a South African um, on a mission from a patron in Johannesburg to buy weapons for an African coup. That got me into his inner councils. Um, <laughs> and that was going spiffingly. I got all sorts of good stuff. And then he was sitting in his limo one day, uh, staring out at a, at a red light, and there was a bookshop right next to the window. <laughs> And uh, a, a book in German called Der Schakal had just come out, and one of the copies on display in the window had fallen over. And he was staring, staring at the window. He got very upset. He was <laughs> basically staring at your author photograph yeah, on the back of the book. Yeah, and he realized that's the South African who's buying arms off me, except he's not. So I, I had, a, had a lucky break. I had so many lucky breaks. I was in my hotel, thankfully. The phone rang, and a voice crisp English officer type voice said, um, Freddie, I said, who calls me Freddie in Hamburg? Uh, I said, yes. He said, I think you should get out of your hotel now. I said, thank you, get out of Hamburg actually. Uh, I don't mean tomorrow, I mean right now, they're coming for you. So I grabbed passport, some money, and ran. Uh, ran across, I was, I was uh, in a hotel on the main station square. So I ran across the square and into Hamburg uh, main railway station, and there was a train just just leaving, slowly, very slowly. Doors closed, windows open, uh, so I went through a window and um, landed on a very fat German businessman. Good landing. He didn't <laughs> like it. Um, then the conductor came by and said, tickets? So I said, no ticket. And he said, ooh, you'll have to pay cash. I said, okay, fine. He said, where are you going? I said, well, where are you going? They <laughs> <laughs> said, he's in Amsterdam. I said, do me nicely. <laughs> so I, um, they said, by the way, how much have you got? And I said, so much. He said, well, that's not going to get your first class ticket. You're in first class, you know. So I had to go back to the hard seats. But I got to, um, to Amsterdam and then hitched the lift home. The whole book is full of stories like that. It's extraordinary. <laughs> I mean, you know, most novelists, even most thriller writers that I know of, or crime writers, don't have any of these adventures. We just sit and make it up. We have no, to make it up. It. We get no access to these adventures. Well, I have this... And also a lot of luck, as you've just said, a lot of luck. with research, you see. Yeah. Uh, if I could sit at home in, Bar in Buckinghamshire doing romances, um, then I wouldn't need to leave the house. And a lot of authors don't leave the house. But if you're going to do stuff about you know, you know, criminals and mercenaries and um, kidnappers and terrorists and so on, and you're going to get the details right, you've got to travel. But is that your journalistic training? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, and, and also a personal pernickettiness. If, if I'm reading a novel and a guy uh, is, is a, a sort of article clerk in an insurance office, suddenly reaches into his pocket and produces a gun, I say, hold the phone. How the hell did he get that? So I have to find out now you get one mm. or a false passport. And this is one of the problems with your books, isn't it? That they are so well researched that you know things like uh, mercenaries have used dogs of war as a primer. I'm afraid, yeah, I'm afraid so. Yes, there was a man called Bob Denard. He was a French mercenary, and the French government charged him with overturning a little republic called the Comores Islands, uh, which had been a French colony. They'd, uh, they'd uh, as they always did, rig the election to put a very pro De Gaulle dictator on the throne, but he'd been toppled by a Marxist. So they, they the French government, um, uh, chartered this mercenary to um, put together a bunch uh, and go and topple, topple him, topple the toppler, <laughs> to speak. Um, and they landed on, they, went, they left Le Havre, I think, in a tra converted trawler, um, sailed all the way around Africa, up the other side. The Comores Islands are in the neck of that gulf between Madagascar and mainland Africa, well, up there in, the, in the, the Narrows. So they landed on the appropriate island, and um, I told, was told later that <laughs> they were all going up the beach and they'd got a, a softback copy of Les Chiens de Guerre <laughs> in the back pocket. They kept whipping it out, like, oh, oui, oui, oh, oui. <laughs> Take the radio station. No, no, look at you. <laughs> so they used it as a, as a manual. And when the, when the Odessa file came out as a film, um, somebody, was it in South America, got the notion that someone living near them was a Nazi yeah. who'd been in hiding. Yeah, well, that, so yeah, somebody no, was actually arrested that was the, because That was actually film. the Odessa file. Yeah. The film came yeah. out, and um, the villain is, is a, a, real, a real butcher. Um, he's called Edward Rushman, and he was known as the butcher of Riga um, under the Nazis when, when there was a concentration camp at Riga in Latvia. And uh, he'd been an absolute so-and-so. Anyway, I made him the villain of the, of the whole novel. And um, because I, I'd got to know Simon Wiesenthal, the Nazi hunter. And he, he said, what, what are you looking for? And I said, well, a really feasible Nazi monster who got away and has disappeared. Um, I want to invent one. He said, he said why, why invent one? I've got a whole rack of them up there. <laughs> no, I, he said, you want Rushman. So anyway, um, there was a guy, years later, when the film came out, there was an Argentinian sitting in his flea pit cinema down the coast from Buenos Aires. And um, he looked at the screen and said, I know him. <laughs> He's down the street from me. <laughs> so he denounced him. And uh, he was duly arrested. Then he was given bail by an ultra-right-wing magistrate. But he, uh, he thought, they're going to get me. So um, he, he made a run for the border, the northern border, which was next to Paraguay. Now, Paraguay was run by a very pro-Nazi dictator at the time called Stroessner. Um, and uh, he, he, Rushman, got on the ferry across the river um, from the South Bank, Argentina, to the North Bank, Paraguay. And in midstream, he had a cardiac arrest, and he died. So um, justice, yes, but <laughs> when they landed on the northern bank, the northern bank said, oh, you're not bringing that bloody corpse over here, so take it back. And the captain said, no, he's paid for his fare. <laughs> so, so anyway, the, the, the Paraguayans wouldn't take him, so he went back. He went back about ten times, till he began to pong, <laughs> and eventually uh, they did take him into Paraguay, where um, t 
two detectives from the Vienna of all places. He was an Austrian by birth. Uh, Vienna police were waiting. And they did um, ID checks on fingerprints and dental work. But the clincher were the two missing toes that he lost for, from, to frostbite, which nobody knew about, but I'd put it in the book. So that was the, the clincher, the two toes missing. When he escaped uh, from British custody um, in the mountains in 947, in the winter, he'd lost two toes to frostbite before he got to South America. So what with the, 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 the dental work and the fingerprints and the two missing toes, they ID'd him. And to this day, he lies in an unmarked grave under a gravel pit in Paraguay. Well, I mean, it's, it, at one point, I mean, a little bit later on, after you'd had all this fantastic success with the books and the films, um, and then you found yourself bankrupt. Ah, yes, that was yes, what, 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 what sometimes called a reverse. Uh, um, I had a man I thought was a friend, I trusted him, and he was an investment broker. And um, I had most of my, uh, my life savings invested, I thought, safely, and, and, um, and not, not, not wild, wild you know, um, adventurous, ultra-high yield stuff, but safe. Hmm. And um, then I was tapping away at one of them stories, I forget which one, and, and there was a tap on the door, and my wife said, Roger Levitt's collapsed. And I thought, oh, poor so-and-so. You know, he's very young for a heart attack. And she said, no, no, his company has collapsed. <laughs> Turned out he'd embezzled a lot. <laughs> so back to square one. Skint. So you had to write a book? <laughs> Keep started, writing. Started, yeah. yeah, start writing. Dash off which number is, four. Which is, well, it's terrific for readers. Uh, and one of the books you wrote was Icon, um, which looked at the right, uh, which I, read, I reread recently, the rise of basically fascism in post-Soviet Russia. And it made me think, well, this resonate, seems to resonate with me today. Uh, there was, there was, I think it's, it's, it's muted now under Putin, but there was a, a, a sort of movement in Russia after the collapse of the USSR um, to restore the monarchy, <laughs> restore the house of Romanov. <clears throat> it got quite strong for a while. Um, so the, the icon is about the idea of um, the sort of, a sort of counter coup to uh, restore um, the house of Rob Romanov. And I discovered that actually the leading, the leading claimant, no, he, wouldn't, he isn't a claimant, he doesn't claim, but because of his mother, uh, the most susceptible to be the Tsar of Russia is actually the, the Prince Michael of Kent. <laughs> so I put him in. <laughs> um, and he, we were a, met him at a party sometime later and he said, uh, I tell you, awfully, awfully, awfully uh, bull of you to put me in as the Tsar of Russia. So I really don't want to end up riddled with bullets at the bottom of a lead mine. <laughs> so please don't do it again. <laughs> then I won't. But you, I mean, you've said, you, I think you say in this book that, that um, you, you think you've written your, your last novel. That, uh, yeah, I think uh, the, um, the, the Kill List mm. was the last one. Um, and, um, Why? Age. Age. You know, I mean, I'm going to be 78 next week. And... Uh, during the kill list, I had to go down to a place called Mogadishu, which is um, not nice. It's uh, Somalia. And um, my wife, you know, Sandy, dear, dear Sandy, said, you, you, you're insane. And if you uh, do any more of these blasted, stupid trips, uh, I'm going to go and see uh, Fiona Shackleton. <laughs> She's a divorce lawyer. <laughs> I don't think she meant it. 
But she, she wasn't pleased that I was going to go to a place like that at, at, uh, at 74. And so she insisted, and I conceded, for the first time ever I went in with the bodyguard. Uh, got a, found a guy from Special Forces and, uh, who lives in Nairobi now and who escorts tourists into and out of um, Somalia, which is, let's face it, you know, I'm, don't go. <laughs> Cancel the vacation, you won't like it. But anyway, we went in and um, uh, went, went off. There is, a, there is a camp, a thing called the camp, which is where the whites live. It's, it's, it's hedged around with blast walls and razor wire and you, I think they're Ugandan guards. Um, but I didn't want to live in there because you know, there's nothing. So he, Dom and I went out into the city and booked into a little Arab hotel, well, Somalian hotel, called, oddly enough, the Peace Hotel. <laughs> a lovely name for a shack in a war zone. But no, we spent three days there and um, you know, had a good look at the, the city of Mogadishu, the wrecked city of Mogadishu, because it's all rubble. I mean, there's virtually nothing that isn't rubble from 20 years of civil war. So um, I got the, I got the, uh, what's the, the flavor of the place, mm. which, which is in the kill list. Is that where, was that where you were when you were looking at the windows at the lovely fireworks? Yeah, I saw this, this um, sort of red firework going past the window. Fortunately, it was going left to right or right to left, I forget, but it was fluttering away, and I thought, gosh, celebratory fireworks. What have they got to celebrate? So I nudged Dom and said, <laughs> fireworks. And he looked at me pitying, and he said, no, boss, that's Tracer. <laughs> and I thought, of course, Tracer lights up. Yes. But it wasn't coming this way, it was going that way. And you were happy about that? I'm happy about that, yeah. There's, I mean, early on in the book, there's a scene where you're in a, an airplane getting a lift to or from Africa, and somebody on the ground decides to take some pot shots at the plane. Well, that was, that uh, was Portuguese and, Guinea. Yeah. And, go, and they go through the, the, the floor of the plane, so you've then got a little, I think you say it was a little bit drafty after that. Um, which seems like it's got this, you've got this very laconic sort of, sort of English reaction to things. Uh, for the amount of times people have shot at you and nearly killed you. Why don't you say Sassanac and be done with it? No, I'm not going to say Sassanac. <laughs> well, you're the one who tried to Scotch accent two minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've, I've got to finish up with the films, though, because the, even the film, you know, you've talked about lucky accidents in your life, and the, the first film, The, the Jackal, um, got made because of an accident, almost, because the director, Fred Zinnemann, had come to London for another project. Yeah, it was. Yeah, Fred Zinnemann, who was, I, I mean, made, he made the day of The Jackal, and uh, I, I think one of the greatest filmmakers. I mean, two, you will remember, the High Noon, still, I reckon, one of the best westerns, and The Man for All Seasons, the story of Sir Thomas mm. More. Um, which was the one before that, before the Jackal. And he had actually come to London um, to make, a, make a, a film of a stage play called Abelard and Eloise. But there was a condition to Abelard and Eloise, which was that if it was being performed live on stage, the film couldn't be made. Well, it had closed in London, and he arrived to negotiate. Um, and suddenly it opened in Bristol. So. Um, the, 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 the producers, I, I, I can't offer you the job. I'm terribly sorry, you've flown all the way from California for nothing. And it, he said, I'm going to fly back on Monday. Um, so the producer desperately looked around his office to do something and grabbed a manuscript. And he said, I've just bought this. Um, you might like to read it over the weekend before your flight. He came back in on Monday and said, that's my next, that's my next film. And that was Day of the Jackal. That was Day of the Jackal. 
You just, got, you just got lucky. I mean, I think it's fantastic. You've had a lucky. I think you've had a very lucky life in many ways. Um, we've managed to get through a whole forty odd minutes without talking about Brexit. Um, do you want to keep it that way, or uh? politics? That's yeah. a, that's a <laughs> politics. There may be a question from the audience. Um, I, d I did ask uh, a mutual friend of ours what should I, what, what what would he be interested in. He said, "Well, we'll get him talking about Brexit." Um, <laughs> so I've not done that. Um, we are going to open I know, up I know questions from Scotland the audience. Voted. Yeah, quite. You might well, not be. Amongst, you might Brexit. not be amongst friends here. You never know. But you might be. You don't know. You oh, don't know. Man, you don't know. Um, I'm going to open it up to questions from the audience. We've got about 15 minutes, and uh, we do have roving mics, one or two roving mics. We've got two, in fact. Just put your hand up, and I'll point to you, and we'll get the mic to you, and we'll try and get through as many as we can. There's a lady in the middle. Keep your hand up, please, and we'll get the mic to you. You can pass it along the row. Thanks. Do you want to take, go, start going up? Do you have any idea who the man was that actually called you in Amsterdam and told you to get out? Not in Amsterdam, in, in Hamburg. Hamburg. Mm. Hamburg. Oh, I know, I know, well, I know what office he came from. Uh, he, he was clearly another Brit, and he, I think, had been sitting around the conference table um, as also with a false identity, because uh, the worry then was uh, arms to the IRA. So I think he was from the firm. And I mean, quite late on you were still getting phone calls from the firm saying, do you know anybody in South Africa you could talk to about their nuclear missiles? Years, years later, yeah. And you know, you said, well, I, I just happened to be going for on holiday <laughs> with Pete Bota. Yeah, I did. <laughs> Not everybody could say that. <laughs> well, um, and you can lie out under a, in, the, in the campsite of a night. You can just say to him, "What are you going to do with your nuclear?" It was. It was. It was a, there was a big worry. That the, the, I mean, the world knew that the, the, the white-ruled, apartheid-dominated South Africa was coming to an end. Um, they'd been forced to release um, Nelson Mandela. Um, it was quite clear they were going to have to have um, one man, one vote elections. Uh, no prizes for guessing that the ANC would win, um, and no prizes for guessing that uh, um, Nelson Mandela would be the first president of a black-ruled South Africa. But the big question was, they have six atom bombs. Uh, what are they going to do with them? Um, so I said, why don't you ask the ambassador? Ooh, no, much too formal, old boy. He'll have to go to the Ministry of Defense and ask and so on. And so on. There'll be records, and it would just like be tipped off. Uh, do you by any chance know anybody there? I said, well, yeah, I know Pick Berta. We've been, um, been hunting together. Oh, he said, you couldn't just possibly to go down and ask him. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, all right. So uh, I found out where he was spending the summer vacation on a game ranch in, um, in the Kalahari Desert. So I booked myself in uh, with my two sons, oddly enough. I thought it was a little adventure for them. And um, so eventually we found ourselves out way out, um, a long way from the ranch house out in the, in the, in the desert, um, around a campfire, which was sort of dying, slowly dying in the middle of the night. And uh, his bodyguard had gone to sleep, and the trackers had gone to sleep, and the warden had gone to sleep. There were only the two of us left awake, and I just murmured to him, uh, by the way, <laughs> when, uh, when black rule comes, what are you going to do with the atom bombs? <laughs> <laughs> I got this, that's supposed to be a very secret, secret undertaking. I got this drawl from the other side of the fire stick and um, South African accent. Freddy, you can go back to London and tell your people, we're going to destroy the bastards. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, that's so much, so much for a secret mission. <laughs> you know, he knew exactly what I was doing there, <laughs> who I was working for. Thanks. Uh, but they did indeed, they, they just destroyed all six just before. Some, someone had a hand up over there. Someone had a hand up over there. 
No? They've put it down again. Shoot. Front, we've got someone in the front row, and then that third row back in the corner. Thank you. The story of your car breaking down on the way to Dresden, you said there was a package to go in one direction, another package to come back. Yeah. How much were you told about the contents of those packages? Um, nothing. Absolutely nothing. Oh. I mean, were you, were you tempted? I mean, I mean, presumably the Russian colonel's report on what was going on, um, and, and he, was a, he was a particularly valuable source because he was in uh, Soviet rocket division, and they had their SS-20 rockets pointed at our country with nuclear weapons on board. So knowing where they were would have been pretty important. Uh, I think what I was bringing in was instructions, uh, his, what, what the firm wanted from him next. So the exchange um, was okay, fine. I, I was coming out with his package um, when um, uh, I, I wasn't stopped. I'd stopped myself to to, 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 because it was, it's no good going through with it in your breast pocket. They'll, they'll empty, empty your pockets. Because the exchange had taken place in a museum. Yeah. yeah. The Albertinium Museum. Um, Which was your cover, was it? You were going out there to do research. I was, I was supposed to be yes, mad, mad keen on, uh, on Greco-Roman artefacts. <laughs> I've got books about, about, about Greco-Roman artefacts. And that's all the, the justification for visiting the museum. But I was on the way, on the way out towards the border. Uh, and my visa expired at midnight, and it was about 10 p.m. So I made—I actually made it after the after being intercepted by the uh, the Volkspolizei um, and seen on my way. Uh, actually made it uh, with about 15 minutes to spare. And when I got to the border, there they did take me apart. Everything in the pockets out. Um, uh, you know, mirrors under the car, go through the boot, go through the, 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 mm. the upholstery, mm. so so. Um, it's rather, rather. Um, th I, I call it pure joy because um, I'm just discussing what, what is the purest form of joy. <laughs> some people say it's this, some people say it's that. Uh, as far as I was concerned, it's going down that long, last half-mile road, bordered by chain-link fencing with watchtowers right and left, towards the West German border. And pure joy is when that red white pole comes up. <laughs> oh, I'm out. <laughs> It's relief, I think, as well, isn't it? We've <laughs> got a question here. You seem very relaxed about all these terrifying things that have happened to you. What is the scariest moment that you have had in your life? Oh, wow. The present moment accepted, okay. obviously. Yes, <laughs> coming to Edinburgh accepted. No, no, no. Um, I, can't, I can't think of... I, 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 really, I don't think I can think of one particularly more than another. Um, when I saw that... I was, I was once again in the book, I was in a, my little Volkswagen going down a later, red laterite road in West Africa, and a MiG uh, spotted me and went into a, a diving turn and then came down the road towards me. Um, and I thought, he's going to fire. So I got out, stopped the car, got out, rolled into a rain ditch. And uh, he did. He, he opened up for about 500 yards and the whole road exploded. By the grace of God, he missed the Volkswagen. And he also missed me. <laughs> yeah, fortunately. Well, I thought, oh, no more like that, if you don't mind. But, I mean, being, being in a plane that's being shot at and all suddenly appearing on the floor, I mean, you're, you can't be relaxed at that moment, are you? No, I think my experience is that it's, it's over, usually over so fast yeah, that you're, you're actually scared in retrospect. You think, God, that was bloody frightening. Yeah. Except at the time, it was just so fast. 
you know, I didn't like getting know. out of Hamburg with a phone call and just <laughs> having to dive to the train. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, you've not got any time. No, to that be wasn't scary. That was just offhand. It's like I better run. Um, but I think when people are shooting at you, that that, that gets scary. Mm. Uh, but you know, when it's when it's over, amazingly, it's when it's over. You think. I mean, you break out into, you know, it's, it's when you go back. It's when you go back to your wife and she says you're not doing that again. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's a scary moment. Um, who else have we got? Anybody else? This side. I'm looking. Oh, the guy with his hand. Keep your hand up, right in the middle there. Thank you, sir. Uh, I'm going to go back to Biafra. Um, when you were the correspondent, were you the chap who coined the phrase uh, Harold Wilson disease? To claim to see Harold Wilson Harold disease. Harold Wilson disease. Have you heard of this? No. Ah, explain what it is. Uh, the Igbos uh, called the distended stomach. They called oh, it Harold Wilson <coughs> disease. Yeah. That is part. See, people think that it was pure starvation, meaning lack of food. It wasn't. It was protein deficiency that uh, was killing these children. And their parents were stuffing with yam and gari, which is sort of... Um, ground cassava root, which is the staple dish down there, but it's all carbohydrate. And it's a medical fact that grown adults need one gram of pure protein per day to stay healthy, whereas children need five. And so when, uh, when the protein, fish, egg, meat, uh, milk, was cut off, the children began to waste. And uh, the mothers in the deep bush didn't know why, didn't, didn't know what was, what was wrong. Um, and it was when they brought them out to the, to the missionary-run um, medical stations and the, uh, the mainly Irish missionaries who had medical training looked at this and said, this is, this is kwashiorkor, which is protein deficiency. And that was when uh, it became plain that, the, that there had to be uh, some form of relief aid coming in, well, uh, like it's happening in Aleppo now. Um, uh, but um, that, that was as a result of this crisis that I think called JCA, Joint Church Aid, set up a, an, the world's only ever illegal uh, Mercy Air Bridge out of the Portuguese island of Sao Tome offshore into um, a very, a very um, sort of basic uh, airstrip in the middle of the rainforest called Uli. Um, and uh, JCA, I think some people are trying to make a film about it, they became nicknamed Jesus Christ Airline. Hmm. Um, and it ran in cargo after cargo after cargo of, um, of well, mainly um, concentrated uh, milk, uh, protein-rich milk, uh, which was a powder which could be brewed up with water uh, and to make a thick kind of um, yogurt-type milk which would keep them alive. So um, anyway, that, the, the uh, JCA ran, I think, for about 12, 12 months. Uh, about a million, according to the Joint International Committee of the Red Cross, about a million children died there, but another million were saved by, by basically JCA. But it was illegal. <laughs> uh, and in the Western world, people were donating and contributing, and, and, um, and the, the funds were being created. Um, the, the Roman Catholic Church, in the form of Caritas Internationalis, which was based in Rome, was one, uh, World Council of Churches, um, and there were various committees uh, here, here in, in Britain saying, you know, donate and help save the children of Biafra. So, and not, I mean, not on the other end, of course. <laughs> I mean, not, not many people know, but Freddie's first book was a non-fiction book about the, um, Biafra, about the crisis, which came out in the late 60s, um, yeah. a couple of years before your first novel. There was a chap just behind you who had his hand up. We'll get the, we'll get the mic to you, sir. Um, keep your hand up, it's coming along the line. Thanks. 
got about time for a couple more questions after this. The fourth protocol contained a characteristically detailed analysis of the Labour Party. <laughs> Would it amuse you to write an update on that roundabout now? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, at the time, the early 80s, um, yes, uh, the, the, the leader of the Labour Party was Michael Foote. He wasn't a bad man, but he was completely airy-fairy. Um, and um, uh, he was a way, way to the left. Um, so much so that the party looked as if it was going to split. Well, it did in a sense because the the, the four, I think, um, um, yeah, what's his name? Um, the Lib Dems, Richard David Rogers, Owen, and, uh, David Owen, yeah. Shirley Williams, and the other one. Jenkins, yeah. Roy Jenkins, they split away to form the SDLP um, because of this uh, thing called entryism, which was then called the militant tendency. Now it's, it's momentum. It's now called momentum, but it was a, it was a movement to take the party so far to the left um, that um, it would uh, enthuse extreme left wingers, but nobody else. So they lost four elections in a row, um, and only winning back when they swerved way back the other way under Tony Blair, which was a landslide, 1997, I think. Um, so yeah, that was that was what I picked as a possible. Um, coup, which would be um, an extreme left-wing British Premier, uh, Labour Party leader, taking over as Premier um, and um, leaving NATO um, and really ma making a pact with Soviet Russia um, and how it could be arranged, possibly. And uh, I think a very, very nasty nuclear accident would do it. Hence, <laughs> fourth protocol. But I mean, the political situation right now in Europe, across Europe and into Russia, is such that it is kind of crying out for thriller writers to explain to us well, the possible yeah. ramifications and well, what might happen there's next. There's no, no lack of menu. I mean, there are menus all over. Not, not getting you hungry for an, a no. final book, Freddie? No, can't, no, no, can't there, tempt there, you. Are, there are younger men who are just as good, better. Um, and women, let's be honest. The other uh, thing, the other younger thing. Younger men and women writing thrillers these cyberspace, days. cyberspace, you see. Yeah, of course. I really, uh, I read some stuff nowadays, and he's doing this with his computer, and it's going there, but it's going to. Over. What the hell is he? I don't know what he's doing. You don't even have a mobile phone, do you? I have one. <laughs> Not with you but on this trip. The problem is sweep, sweeping the cobwebs off. <laughs> there was a lady here. Yep, we'll get this one. I think that might be us. Thanks. My most favourite book of yours is The Fist of God. Oh. And I wondered what interesting research you did for that very interesting set of plots. Mm -hmm. Well, Fist of God was, yeah, it was the first Iraq War, um, 1990. Saddam Hussein had invaded Kuwait, uh, the West formed an alliance of about, I think, in all 50 states, Arabs included, um, to counter-invade and liberate Kuwait. And this book is based on on some of the things that um, I think we weren't told at the time. It was, um, it was the first war that was virtually fought on television because uh, you could sit in your sitting room at home looking at the screen in the corner of the room and see sort of a, a floating cross going around the screen and suddenly it would latch onto a building and you wait a minute and the building would suddenly go in silence but obviously obliterated. And that wasn't happening last week. That was happening as you watched. This was instantaneous transmission from the nose cone of the fighter to your set. Um, and then each evening there would be a military briefing uh, in Riyadh um, and all these beautifully 
pressed colonels and generals coming on and saying, well, some, some of this is happening. And when it was over, I, it, I thought it was so perfect, we ought to have screen credits, you know, lo location <laughs> devised by, special effects by, so and so. I thought, no, it wasn't, no war is that perfect, cleaned, mm. that neat. Mm. Um, a lot of things that we weren't told, and one of them I thought was, we must have had someone high in the court of uh, Saddam Hussein, but we knew too much. And you can't see under the desert, and you can't see through the roof of a warehouse, but we knew. <laughs> and hence, Agent Jericho, um, who's a key figure in, uh, and uh, the invention of Mike Martin, the ex-SAS man who could pass for Arab among Arabs. There have only ever been two who could do that. Anyway. That was it. <laughs> um, we're out of time, I'm afraid. Um, Freddie will be signing next door in the signing tent, and he will be able to take questions from you there if you're queuing up to get a book signed. Uh, it would be appreciated if you give us a minute to get out so you can actually get to the signing table before everybody rushes to the exits. But meantime, I want to thank Freddie Forsyth for an extraordinary hour. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.